uh, we continue seeing how Jesus reveals himself to the people. John chapter 7, starting in verse uh, 37. Just a, a little bit of context before I start reading. Jesus has uh, come to the people uh, in, in Jerusalem. He wasn't planning, he said, on going to the festival, but he comes there secretly and observes things. And finally, on the last day of the festival, he stands up and has something to say. Verse 37, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Any, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, uh, whom, excuse me, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And on hearing his words, some of the people said, "Surely this man is the prophet." And others said, "No, he is the Messiah." And still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, they said, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or any of the Pharisees believed in him? No, this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Now, Nicodemus, who had gone uh, to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, "Are, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever seen an artesian well, one of those wells or fountains of water that always keeps flowing? Well, I I grew up going to this this camp at a place called Little Eden in Onekama, Michigan. Uh, This map, by the way, is thanks to all of your Christmas present to me uh, at the end of last year, uh, made by a company that's based in Atwood. Uh, and, and here, uh, Little Eden is uh, around here in Onekama, Michigan, around the lake. And often in the dunes around Lake Michigan, you have springs of water that flow. And this little spring in Onekama would flow year-round, and it bubbled up with the most delicious water ever. People from miles around would come and bring their jugs and water bottles and fill them. Uh, people at the camp would get all their water there. People would uh, fill their trunks with water when they went home just to have this delicious water with them. It was living water, water that gave life. Now, all around the Great Lakes, this this beautiful area of water, um, a fifth of the fresh water in the entire planet, this treasure of water that we share, that we even take for granted, water is everywhere. 
And yet, there are some just outside of the Great Lakes Basin who sometimes can't take advantage of that water. The, the Great Lakes states, by the way, uh, years ago, a couple years ago, created a, a compact to protect the Great Lakes from um, damage, from being drained to, to water the west and other things. A, a wise thing to do, I think, for the next 100 years. But uh, there, there, there's this little town over here by Racine, Wisconsin, called Waukesha. And they had a problem with their, their water. You see, 100, 150, 200 years ago, people would come to Waukesha by droves to get the fresh, delicious spring water that they had there. 25 train loads a day of people would come out there on summer weekends just to partake of these rich, delicious, medicinal waters that they had. But what happened? The waters dried up. Too many wells, too much agriculture. I don't really know why they started drying up, but there was not enough water for the town of Waukesha, Wisconsin. And the problem for them is they're just outside of the Great Lakes Basin. They're just alongside of the line where waters here flow down to the Mississippi and waters here flow into the Great Lakes. And so they're not allowed, technically, to get water from Lake Michigan. Uh, So they they, they were desperate for water, and and the wells that they were digging, the deep new wells that they had, had trouble. They, They had too much radium in them. So they needed to get fresher, good, clean water that was not poisoned with this uh, radioactive substance. And the town of Waukesha was uh, looking for a way to do that, and uh, they, they, they appealed to the Great Lakes Compact to see if they could uh, dig miles and miles of pipeline to Lake Michigan to get water out of the Great Lakes, pipe it to their town, use it, treat it, and then pipe the wastewater back into Lake Michigan. And they were eventually granted permission to do that, although some people think that they shouldn't have gotten that permission. I'm, not, I'm on the fence on that one. But thankfully, they, they do finally have this fresh living water to take from Lake Michigan and be able to drink. I, I read about that recently in a, a great book called the, the Death and Life of the Great Lakes, a, a book that anyone who loves the Great Lakes or lives near them should read because it talks about how the, all these different threats are, are, are facing these Great Lakes and how we can come together to protect them for generations to come. Now, water that flows like the Great Lakes is a great gift. And it's this gift that we have around Lake Michigan, but some people in in the dry southwest, for example, don't have that much water. Or in a place like Israel, where Jesus gets up in the middle of a festival and says, I am living water. That's a radical statement, and particularly in the middle of the festival that he's in. Water is life in a dry desert land. And a water source that that never runs dry is like pure gold. And and in typical Jesus way, he takes what's going on around him, what people are talking about, the festival that is happening. He takes those signs and he points them right to him. And we've seen Jesus do this before. A a few weeks ago, you might remember at a wedding, Jesus uh, took water and turned it into wine. And although people didn't know it, this miracle pointed to the abundance of his kingdom. Or in the wilderness, when he was preaching to the people, he takes this bread and fish and he multiplies them and feeds a multitude of people with enough and more than enough, like, like manna from heaven. Or, or how he, at a well side in, in, um, in, in the Samaritan country, Jesus meets a woman who needs water, who has the deepest needs that one could imagine, and she, he offers to satisfy her every need with the water that he gives. Because that's how Jesus comes and teaches. And Jesus does it again at this festival in Jerusalem. And one commentator says that context is everything to understand this story. What festival is Jesus at in Jerusalem? 
Well, it's not the Passover festival. No, it's this festival called the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles or Tents. It's the time of year when people would build shelters in the fields to sleep in when they were harvesting their crops. They, they'd sleep out there for the whole time and they could get, until they could get the whole harvest in. It, it's a harvest festival. It reminds me a little bit of Laos, where my wife and I used to live, where farmers would build these little shelters out in their fields on the mountainsides or in their rice paddies, and they'd use them to rest in the middle of the day from the hot sun. And at key work times, they'd camp out there. They'd bring their pots and pans, build a fire, set up a mosquito net, and just sleep there all the time until the work was done. So this festival of booths is a harvest festival. That's the first layer of meaning of what's going on. But there's also other layers of it, too. The, the booths that people build at the festivals had another reason, another meaning that they added to them. You might, have, you might remember that when the people of Israel were wandering through the desert in the book of Exodus, they slept in tents for 40 years. The festival forces them to remember, to remember what it was like to wander in the desert, to live in a tent or a booth or a temporary shelter for a week. That's the second layer of meaning. And then the third layer of meaning has to do with water. See, the the land of Israel depended on these winter rains and snows to make the, the land wet enough to plant crops for the next season. Every summer was dry for months on end, and every winter was wet. And so this fall festival reminds people of their dependence on water for survival. And each day of the festival, there would be a priestly procession out of the temple, down the hill to the pool of Siloam, this ever-fresh, ever-flowing pool of water kind of below the hill of the temple mount. And there, the the priest would take a golden pitcher and they'd dip water out of the pool and then carry it back up to the temple mount and pour it all over the altar washing it clean, covering the stones, making them wet, you know, spreading out onto the paving tiles. Now imagine Jesus in that scene. Jesus stands up on this last and greatest day of the festival, and the water procession has probably just gone down to the pool of Siloam to get the water and come back up, and there's still water dripping off the altar. And Jesus gets up in the middle of the temple courts, and he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me, And drink. See, suddenly those words of Jesus seem a bit more radical, a bit surprising, more real, because Jesus is pointing to this deep spiritual truth, and only those who get it will understand. Everyone else is either going to be confused or driven away by his words, like, what is this guy saying? And sure enough, some of the people there react by declaring that he is a prophet, actually, the prophet prophet. They, they think he is Elijah, probably. The, Elijah was someone they were looking out for, someone who would come at the end of the days. And, and if you remember Elijah's story, that makes a little bit of sense. Elijah uh, is the one who God provides for in the midst of drought. God declared through Elijah's voice a, a drought over the land of Israel, and then God sends Elijah into the desert And there he provides for him in this little ravine with water flowing, with uh, ravens bringing him meat in the air. And when the water dries up, God sends him on a long journey over to foreign country to this widow in Sidon who uh, provides food and meat and water and oil for him. And there God makes that water and oil never run out. There is always enough for him and for her and for her son. 
And then after a few years, he heads back to Israel for this grand showdown with the the king Ahab on the top of Mount Carmel. Uh, The question is, whose God is the real God? Whose God is really in control of the reign? Whose God can provide? And the one who burns up the sacrifice that they make and who sends rain is God. Well, uh, Elijah soaks the altar with water that they bring up from the bottom of the mountain. Water, and and the meat gets wet and the wood gets wet and there's this moat running down all around it full of water. It, It starts to sound a little bit like what's going on at the temple, at that feast of booths, an altar covered with water. And then, then God comes in power, and he sets the whole thing on fire. And so all the water dries up on the altar, and the meat, and the, the, the wood, and, and the water all around. And the people fall flat on their faces, and they say, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then, and only then, does God send rain to the land. So it's no surprise that here at the altar, with the water pouring down it, people think that Jesus might be Elijah. Well, they also think, some of them, that he's the Messiah. But uh, others are quite sure that he could not possibly be the Messiah. They know their scriptures. They've read, they know that the Messiah has to come from David's line. He has got to be born in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. And they know that this Jesus guy is from Nazareth, from Galilee, from that hill country, the backwards place. Everyone knows that. Case closed. Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. The funny thing here is that they are reading the scriptures correctly, but they are missing the point. They think that the Messiah must be born and raised in Bethlehem, but John here doesn't seem to care at all about that. In fact, what is more important, says John, is that Jesus is the source, the source of living water, the great I am who Moses met in the burning bush and who gave flowing water from a rock. He's the rock of ages, and the Messiah's words and actions point to God, and that should be enough. In fact, John doesn't even bother to clarify here or anywhere in his gospel that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem. No, Matthew and Luke make a big point of that, but it doesn't seem to matter to John. He doesn't even tell any story about where Jesus was born. All we get is this great cosmic story of Jesus, the Word before all time, the Word who was with God, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. How exactly it happened doesn't seem to matter much to John because God is here in the person of Jesus, the the great I am who is Emmanuel, God with us. What else do you need, he's saying? Believe. Of course, that won't do for those people who oppose Jesus, whether it's the Pharisees or the religious experts of the day. In fact, I wonder sometimes if uh, some of us might end up more like the Pharisees when questions come up. Maybe you're the, the, that one Christian in your workplace that everyone knows, or, or there's a conversation in the break room where people kind of get close to the truth and yet so far from it. Maybe it's something about angels or death or maybe it's about trying hard so that you can go to heaven. And you sit there and you know the truth. You know what the Bible says and you know what they're saying is not right, maybe even wrong. And you just want to speak up and say, well, actually, the Bible says this. Well, actually, we we don't become angels when we die. Or, well, actually, the Bible says we're saved by grace alone apart from works. I think pastors sometimes suffer an especially bad case of the well-actuallys, like the Pharisees. 
See, the, the problem is that people say all sorts of things out there about religion in the world, and maybe it's after church in the fellowship hall, or maybe it's at a funeral, maybe it's a post on Facebook, and the problem with pastors and, and Christians, people who've been raised in the church, is that sometimes we, we know our Bibles, we know theology, we know the story of the church, and sometimes we feel obliged to step in and say something, and it rarely goes well. You know, sometimes it's wisest to to just stay back and stay quiet uh, unless, of course, someone's life is at stake, someone's safety or or someone's well-being. And I think that's where some pastors will draw the line. Uh, then, then, Then it's important to step in and defend that person who's being hurt by this bad theology. But I wonder sometimes how often we end up on the Pharisees' side in this story. You know, correct about Scripture, but missing the point. Uh, we, we may have all of our theological ducks in the row. We may think we know Scripture by heart, but we fail to love our neighbor. Or, or maybe we know uh, lots of things about the Bible, but we don't know the living word. Jesus Christ, in all of his life-changing, uh, grace-filled, saving power. And that's where the Pharisees were, right on the details, but wrong on the point of it. And the point that Jesus wants to make sure that people get clearly is that he is living water. I am living water, he says. And before, he offered water to the woman at the well. And here, it's clear that he himself is the living water that he is offering. But there's more to it than just that. In Greek, it's not entirely clear whether the living water comes from Jesus or if it comes from the believer's heart. Uh, does the living water come from those who believe or, or from the source of living water himself? And the answer is probably a little bit of both, but we'll look at it each way in turn. I think it makes sense that Jesus says that living water comes from him because Jesus is living water. And what's curious here is where in Jesus the living water comes from. It, it says sometimes it's translated his side or his heart, but the, the real word is his womb, the the deepest part of him. Now, we don't usually think of men having wombs, but what does this mean? Well, it's the same word that Jesus uses when Nicodemus comes to him in John 3 and says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, no way. No one can go back into the womb and be born again. That's silly. But that same word here is translated sometimes heart or side or, or deep within. And what it really means is this deepest place in your body, that that source of life. And the word also appears again in John's gospel, near the end. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and soldiers pierce Jesus' side, it's really his womb that they're piercing. And what flows out of him is water, living water, we should say. Living water flows from Jesus' womb. So it's not a stretch to think that the Gospel of John is making a point here about Jesus himself. The the source of living water is Jesus. And where does that water come from? From his wounded body, hung on the cross, pierced and, and bled until water flows clear from his side. Jesus' body, Jesus himself, is living water. And second, the the living water comes from Jesus, and it points to people's hope for this everlasting living water. Just like the Festival of Booths pointed to people's hope for one day when streams of living water would flow out of the temple. Uh, It comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, where this stream flows out east from the temple, and it starts as a trickle, but every 500 meters or so, every uh, third of a mile, it gets a bit deeper 
And the angel has Ezekiel step into the water again and again. First it's ankle deep, and then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep, and then it's over his head, and he has to swim to cross it. The water is this abundant, flowing, living water, and it gives life. The water flows east down into the Dead Sea. And there, suddenly, that lifeless body of water becomes full of life. Uh, There are fish and birds in it. People cast their nets out and bring in more than enough to eat. And this is why the people of Israel longed for the living water of Jesus. Because water brings life. And they wanted to see that water flowing out from the temple to water their whole land. And here... On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stands up and says, I am living water. Living water flows from him. And then the other side of it, of course, is that living water flows from us, from the believer's heart, as Jesus says. Living water comes from him, but it comes to those who believe and will flow from within them out into the world. And, and like that, that town of Waukesha, Wisconsin, that found their way to get water into their town, to have that living water that give them, would give them enough to breathe and drink and live, John wants believers to get their living water right from the source, right from Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. And John clarifies what that means. He says it's the the Spirit of God that comes upon believers at Pentecost and fills them with living water. And John doesn't mean that the the Spirit isn't already active in the world. Don't don't let anyone tell you that the Holy Spirit isn't present all through the Old Testament. Don't let Jehovah's Witnesses use this text to tell you that the Spirit isn't God. No, living water comes from Jesus. Living water reminds us of our our baptism. Living water that that flows from Jesus' side, It, it comes out and it cleanses and washes us. And by the Spirit that moves in the world, this living water comes and the Spirit washes us and cleanses us in the waters of baptism. The Spirit makes us new through this water that gives life. The Spirit helps us see how Jesus' death and resurrection changes everything. And and though the, the role of the Spirit changes after Jesus' ascension, we see that the Spirit comes among us to give life. The Spirit enables us to know Jesus. This living water Spirit waters our hearts every day and helps us to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit helps us understand Scripture, and the Spirit comforts us in our sorrow. The Spirit brings us strength in weakness and loss, and the Spirit of God advocates before us, before God's throne. The Spirit shows us how to walk in God's paths because the Spirit is living water. And everyone who believes has the Spirit. That's what John is saying. So we all have living water flowing out from within us too. To where does that living water flow out of you today or tomorrow or as you go around? I heard a story this week about a doctor or a nurse who was sitting in the hospital cafeteria and having yet another Subway sandwich after weeks and weeks of work. And they saw a woman come down to, the, hosp- to the, the counter and kind of look around and consider, grab a cookie and then put it back down again. Like she wasn't sure what she could get. She'd probably been in the hospital for weeks. She looked tired. Maybe she was caring for a loved one. And, and this person, he wonders if this woman just might not have enough money to pay for a sandwich. So he, he goes up to the counter and he says, I've got this one. Order whatever you want. And that woman's day is transformed by this gift of 
of, of, of drink and of food, of more than enough to cover her needs that moment so that she can care for the one who she loves. It's this, this moment of living water that captures what it looks like for living water to flow out of us into the world. We've received living water from Jesus, water that washes and cleanses, water that, he, uh, that fills our thirst and helps us to pour out into other people. Where is living water flowing from you? Listen to the Spirit and let the waters flow. That's why we do Spirit-filled things when we go out in the world. We, we comfort and console other people. We counsel and advise them by the word of the Spirit in our hearts. We might advocate for justice and for freedom for prisoners and speak words of truth. We might pray for those who suffer. We might translate and give voice to those who don't have voice, who cannot speak. We might, by the Spirit's power, give life. And we give water. We give the Spirit's water abundantly and joyfully because we have received in Jesus Christ living water. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O Jesus Christ, you, the source of living water, may we always be found in you, washed and cleansed in your your healing flow, and and filled with your water of your Spirit to, to go out into the world and speak your name. Thank you for the gift of living water, for how you provide for us uh, this, this source that is never-ending and always flowing of life within us. We know it is because of your life, not because of anything we've done, that we can live and move and breathe. And we give you thanks and praise for that. And, and, and if, we, if we are encountering the source of living water for the first time, Lord, may we receive your water with open hands and mouth quenching our thirst and healing our every need, that we may be washed and cleansed by you. O Lord, may we also be your living water in the world, that your water may flow from our hearts and our hands and our mouths, that we may bless other people with its blessing that you've given us. And we look for that day when, when your water will flow out of the temple and down into the sea, into the places of death and darkness and filling them with life, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This we pray in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we respond to the gift of living water, we, we come to Jesus, our source of living water, the one who loves us and meets our every need. I invite you to rise in body or in spirit and we'll sing, Jesus, lover of my soul, and uh, I've got peace like a river. <laughs>